Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the same lessons they extract to medical practice. I'll then pose a question to the two of them as the patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Welcome, Jonathan. It's hard to believe a full month has passed since the last unfiltered episode. It feels like yesterday, Robbie. I I love chatting with you. Jonathan, in a recent episode of Unfiltered, we talked about trust. Numerous listeners wrote to say how much they appreciated our tackling this important but sensitive topic. I thought this time we'd have to discuss an equally important issue, empathy. Your new book is about the heart. Is this where empathy resides? Mm. Robbie, empathy resides in the emotional heart and also has impacts on the physical heart and the physiologic heart for sure. I can't think of a more important subject or skill, capacity, power than human empathy. It's what binds us, you and me and Jeremy here and all of our listeners together. Uh, Empathy can either be activated if we're aware of it intentionally and skillfully, or it can be divisive. Uh, We can be biased in the way that we're empathic for one group versus another. I definitely believe that empathy lives in the heart. If you approach me in a kind, caring, thoughtful way, either as a friend, a colleague, or as a leader, or as a physician, and I can sense that you are empathic and we can get into the different aspects of empathy, We know that that has not only an emotional impact on me, but a physiologic impact. It helps steady my heart, lower my heart rate, improve my heart rate variability, which is a sign of low stress, and can even lower my blood pressure in the exam room. You mentioned the different parts of empathy. You're an expert on it, but my understanding is that empathy has two parts to it. It's the ability to recognize the emotion in someone else and the ability to at the same time experience this is this the way you think about empathy in your writings and in your practice yeah i think about it yeah those are two steps of empathy there's a recognition uh and also an experiencing more commonly used terms would be what we call cognitive empathy which means i can imagine what you're going through i can I can intellectually have the thoughts that you might be having, either by assuming uh, based on experience or asking you. That's one piece of empathy. It's really kind of a, a brainy activity. The second piece that you were talking about is often called affective empathy. Affect re- relates to emotions and how they show up. And that's really the felt sense. So if I'm having a deep emotion and you are experiencing empathy, you're not just thinking what I'm going through, you're literally feeling it uh, based on primate evolution, you are wired to feel some of the same feelings. So that's what's called affective empathy. So those are the two pieces of empathy, which until we know that there are two aspects of empathy, there is an easy way to become overwhelmed. And a common issue in our world, in, in the world of burnout and trying to heal our healthcare system, 
specifically among dirt nurses and doctors and pharmacists, is this feeling of getting caught up in our patients' emotions and their families' emotions. I also experienced this at home. And it was a revelation for me, Robbie, when I read the work of uh, psychologist Paul Bloom, who, who wrote a book that was radically titled Against Empathy. And my first thought was, wait, what? Empathy is a bad thing? And the point wasn't that empathy is a bad thing. The point, as it related to my experience, is that it's easy to become overwhelmed in someone else's emotions and to have the dial too high on that affective piece, which can then help nobody. It's like if you're a lifeguard and you start to panic when someone else is panicking, two people can drown. So learning the difference between affective empathy and cognitive empathy is something that helped me personally. And whenever I speak to audiences who are dealing with helping other people and experiencing vicarious trauma or stress, it's very helpful to distinguish between those two aspects. This sounds like a very narrow line you're trying to walk. Let's look historically. Doctors were taught that emotions were bad and that they got in the way of objective thinking. So I could imagine for what you're saying that empathy could be a negative experience in terms of clinical outcomes. And on the other hand, we've also said that patients desire empathy and recover better if they know that people care about them. Can you try to define that line better and not sort of walk on both sides of it? So we spoke on our previous episode about this issue of bias, uh, in, intrinsic bias, cognitive bias, all the ways that the human mind slips up and makes mistakes. And we do it all the time as doctors uh, and even as leaders, where we think that we're purely in the cognitive rational mind. We are, have a sense of righteousness because we came up with certain thoughts and we believe that we're true. As uh, outside feedback in the form of AI and colleagues and other places come in, we realize that we make a lot more mistakes with this quote unquote uh, pure thinking mind uh, than we are aware of. What we know from the field of psychology, Robbie, is that when we think we're uh, purely using our mind to come up with uh, rational thoughts, more often than not, those thoughts are impacted by our emotions, by emotions that we may or may not be aware of. And so to your point, it's not a very clean line. Um, you can't separate thoughts from emotions purely. Uh, you also made reference to this old idea that you know, doctors should not bring emotions to work. And I was taught that during my residency, particularly on my surgical rotations, uh, really in retrospect to my detriment. I was suppressing emotions because the chief resident made it clear that there was no place for sadness, for grief, for tears uh, in a doctor. You had to be purely rational. And it really leads me, Robbie, to think of examples through history, whether it's the kamikaze pilots uh, who had went on suicide bombing missions in World War II, they were very rational. Uh, there's a problem if we stick strictly to the rational side of uh, the human experience when working with others. We can come off as robotic, we can come off as cold and uncaring, and uh, there's really a lack of compassion. Was there, was there more to the question that you wanted to dive into there? Lots of different pieces you've raised that I wanna dive deep into. So let's start with one of them. 
which is the bias that you've raised. To me, this sounds like it's part of what you're describing as effective um, empathy. In the affect, you experience the other person's pain as your own. And as we've talked about in the past, that tends to happen for people who we see as being like us, meaning that they are the same race, maybe the same religion, maybe the same language. And the data says that we treat them better, or reversing it, that we treat people who don't look like us worse without recognizing that it's happening. We give better, more pain medication to people who look like us. We provide more attention to them, we're more responsive to them. And this, I assume, is what you're describing as one part of the negative side. Am I correct? Absolutely. Uh, what 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 you're referring to is commonly known as empathy bias. So it's one of the biases that we have where we may think that we're being empathic because we care about and for other people, but we don't realize that what you just said is a matter of human nature. We all have a tendency to be more caring, to be to identify more with people who we identify as part of this same quote tribe. And this is from evolutionary psychology. If somebody has the same skin color as us, and this is known, we have a mental model in our mind that we care more about that person. It's, it's something that um, is part of our evolutionary um, biology, and it's something that can be overcome if we're aware of it. It, uh, it works across genders. We're seeing it in the world now, across religions. Uh, and this is the root, I think, of a lot of human suffering, is that the flip side of empathy which is to care for someone's suffering and to celebrate in someone's joy, is that if we only apply that to our quote in-group, the people that are like us, we often do the opposite to the out-group and we can develop biases against them. So empathy is a double-edged sword. And I assume that all listeners would agree that that's a bad consequence of empathy. So let's look at this split between cognitive and affective empathy. I can imagine you could learn cognitive empathy. I can teach you to be able to better recognize emotions in others. I mean, there's some people who have difficulty doing that, often on the spectrum of autism, but I can teach most people how to recognize it, how to comment upon it, but can I teach them how to feel it? Can I change that part of the emotion? And what happens if you only have the cognitive, but not the affective? Absolutely. The answer is 100% yes. And this is a great question. Um, there are a lot of efforts, as you know, in organizations around the world to bring in trainers and facilitators who help leaders develop emotional intelligence. That was a, a famous book written by uh, psychologist Daniel Goleman in 1980s. Uh, to your point, which is not only is affective empathy or feeling emotions important for leaders and for leadership and for all relationships, but it can be developed with certain practices. Now, in terms of the how, that's very interesting. We know, and this now we're getting into the conversation about emotions, Robbie. So if you say to me, I'm feeling angry, how is it that I right away 
can feel in my body a little bit of what you might be going through. Studies have shown that emotions are experienced in the body, in the physical body. They're not thoughts in the mind. So, and not only that, emotional experiences in different parts of the body, whether it's a warmth in the chest, a coldness in the hands, uh, clenching in the stomach, are consistent across nations, across cultures. So people have been asked to create maps of their bodies when they're experiencing, whether it's fear, sadness, love, grief. And there's a remarkable consistency across cultures of how we feel emotions in our body. So that's step one is recognizing that there is such a thing as a common human experience of emotions. Step two is to recognize that we're working with an, it's an uphill battle in the West. Uh, in general, I believe that we have tuned out our emotions. I was scrolling the internet last night, and I think part of the reason I was doing that is I had emotions that were going on because of world events that I didn't want to face in that moment. So we're really good at distracting ourselves from feeling emotions in the body. Some of us do it by thinking all the time or analyzing uh, as leaders and working with spreadsheets. It's kind of a way of avoiding emotions. So the second step, Robbie, is to teach leaders to check in to where emotions are felt. And despite what I used to believe, which is that they were thoughts in the mind, they're literal feelings in the body. And this is one of the reasons why I teach all the leaders that I work with the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness is not about the mind. It's about developing a moment-to-moment -moment awareness of the sensations throughout the body so that those sensations can properly be interpreted as the raw feelings that then lead to full-blown emotions. You're one of the world's experts on burnout. It certainly is a topic deeply covered in your book. If I look at the survey results from clinicians about burnout, and I dived in and asked them, do the administrators of the insurance companies or in the place that you work have empathy, <laughs> I'm going to guess that they might say they have cognitive empathy, but not effective empathy. Do you think I'm right? And what <laughs> should be done as a consequence of that? I would I would modify that slightly, Robbie, to bring in what we talked about earlier, which is I wouldn't say that others uh, who aren't treating us well don't have uh, affective empathy and don't feel emotions. I don't want to make that broad assumption, but I would say that they tend to apply or, or fall victim to the empathy bias, which is they may be more empathic or feel the feelings of other administrators and others on the financial side, and perhaps not so much to physicians and those on the front lines. And I know countless leaders and administrators who are deeply caring, deeply felt emotions based on the suffering of their physicians. So I don't want to paint a sweeping generalization. And on the other hand, Robbie, different humans are called to different job families. And um, those of us who are called to work in the healing professions and the helping professions, we naturally are higher from birth or from early childhood in uh, affective uh, and cognitive empathy, where others who may be dialed in higher on purely the cognitive piece 
may not go into the face-to-face uh, -face healing professions and may work more in uh, either in executive roles, administrative roles, uh, task-based roles. I like your question, though. There was a lot of interest a couple of months ago when some researchers took 200 questions coming from patients and fed them to ChatGPT and was able to have responses created by the computer. So now they had the responses that the doctors had offered and the ones that ChatGPT had offered. And then they took both sets by unlabeling them and gave them to observers, experts in the area who had no idea who was the origin of the particular response. And surprisingly, four times as often, these impartial observers picked the ChatGPT as being more accurate and informative, but nine times as often, these observers said that the response was more empathetic. Now, I can believe that ChatGPT has cognitive empathy. It's hard for me to see that it has effective empathy. What do you make of this? Which is more important as a patient? Would you rather someone had incredible cognitive empathy that they communicated to you or that you really cared how they felt? It's, it's a great question, Robbie. And the key to, the, to my answer is the, the last word that you use, which is communicated. Something we haven't talked about yet in this conversation is um, it's one thing to experience empathy for another person, whether it's cognitive or affective. And often that's where we stop and we fall short as physicians, as leaders, as nurses. There's a second piece to empathy, and I think you brought this up at the very beginning of the conversation, which is expression of empathy, communication of empathy, a transmission of empathy, or the fact that we're experiencing empathy to another person. We wrongly assume, we wrongly assume that because I am experiencing what you're experiencing, or I'm feeling what you're feeling, I wrongly assume that you know that and that you can tell it. And so in the experiment that you described with the reviewers on Reddit, where they put uh, physicians against uh, ChatGPT, the reason I believe that the physicians failed is twofold. One, empathy is fragile and it can easily be eroded uh, so that the physicians uh, who perhaps were burnt out, exhausted, or frankly didn't have the time to write long answers, weren't able to express or communicate extensive uh, empathy. And it doesn't, it doesn't take that much, but if you're talking about online, you need to use words. If, if the experiment were done otherwise, Robbie, like if we wanna do that experiment again in my clinic, I will put myself up against a robot any day for you to feel my empathy with a simple look in the corner of my eye, a gentle warm smile, or a warm touch on your shoulder. There are no words that are needed there. There's no robot yet that can, can translate that. So the first point that I had about that study is that uh, empathy is fragile, uh, easily eroded and requires time. And the second piece is to your point, empathy cannot just be felt, it has to be communicated explicitly. And AI and uh, ChatGPT do that much, much better than the average physician.
the academics separate empathy from words like sympathy or compassion, which tend to be, again, as I'm using the language you're describing, more of the cognitive type of empathy, the recognition of someone else's pain. The experience of the pain itself, as I'm listening to you, I wonder what does it do to providers of care when they're experiencing this pain, not their own pain, the pain of others personally every day in the, in their practice? Hmm. Does that elevate their sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, or could it possibly erode it? Does it is it a way to improve burnout and minimize it? Or is it something that augments it and at some point just simply becomes unbearable? Robbie, you brought up a, a couple of, of points there that I think are worth parsing out. Uh, the first is you talked about sympathy versus empathy. And there's really what I like to think about is there's a ladder, essentially a ladder. I call it the ladder of love. Uh, and all of this conversation is about the difference between hatred, animosity on the one hand and love on the other. And all the way towards the colder side, I'm going to put pity and sympathy. Uh, not only are they just cognitive and not really feeling somebody else's experience, in a way they're judging someone else's inferior. For me to pity someone means that I don't view them as equals. And often, more often than not, when we pity someone else, we don't take action to do anything about it. We, we pity people from a distance, and it's easy to do that. Which brings into the, the second question, which I think is really the interesting one that you asked is, what's the effect over time, day after day of caring healthcare providers, feeling other people's pain? And there's a simple answer to your question and that it's a damaging effect. If I allow the fire that's inside of you to start burning inside of me, it creates literal inflammation in my body. It activates my sympathetic nervous system and it can create physiologic damage over time. And this is what's known as vicarious distress or secondary distress or vicarious trauma. If I'm watching, if I'm watching someone experience trauma, and this has relevance in the world today as well, merely by seeing news reports of someone else's suffering, if I'm not self-aware, I can start to experience that suffering in my body and it can take a physiologic toll, even leading to high blood pressure or a broken heart. And we've seen this. So what's the answer? The answer is now to look at the difference between empathy and compassion. And these are very different phenomena. Empathy now, I'm gonna denigrate it further, is a passive act. Even if I communicate empathy to you, compassion is a much more active act where I have agency. I'm not only going to experience what you're, you're experiencing, but I'm committed to doing something about it if I can. So if you look in my bloodstream, when I'm experiencing affective empathy and you're suffering, Robbie, you're going to see high levels of cortisol, high levels of adrenaline, epinephrine, and my body is going to be a state of fight or flight. However, if I'm not just experiencing empathy, but I'm really feeling compassion for your suffering and I'm figuring out things that I can do to make your suffering better. If I do that and you check my blood sample, 
I'm going to have lower levels of the stress hormones and higher levels of the feel-good hormones, the serotonin, oxytocin, the bonding hormones, and physiologically, my blood pressure will be lower. So there is a very different internal bodily state that people uh, experience when caring for others, whether it's pure empathy or it's actual compassion. One leads to burnout, the other leads to long-term fulfillment. And the last word that I'll say right there, as I pause, is to say that compassion is something that uh, it, it is wonderful and it can be healing. However, if I don't have an outlet to help you in your suffering, if I don't have the resources, the staffing, the nurses, uh, the medications, if you can't afford the medicines or the treatments that I want to give you, then the opposite effect happens. If I'm thwarted in my desire to, to be compassionate towards you, I then experience uh, higher levels of distress in my body. And that is partly related to something called moral injury that we've discussed before. When I feel that my own values are violated because I can't help someone who's suffering, then I begin to suffer even more. That is a great conclusion to the topic of empathy. We're recording this podcast the day before Thanksgiving, although it won't air until this coming Tuesday. Let me ask you about a different emotion, one that I can't find anything negative about, all <laughs> positive, and that is gratitude. How does gratitude fit into the heart? Well, first I want to say, Robbie, that I'm just grateful to be here talking with you, uh, with Jeremy, uh, with the work that you've done creating this podcast, helping so many people around the world, uh, not only through COVID, but before and after. And I'm grateful to be a part of that. Well, I'm so grateful to have you on the show. Uh, you've educated me and I'm sure all the listeners over the past year in a tremendous fashion. And we're all looking forward to reading your book. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. To answer your question, uh, gratitude has many uh, effects, literal effects on the beating heart. It's not to be dismissed as something that's woo-woo and something that we should just uh, do in a journal in our free time because it makes us feel good emotionally. Uh, there have been many studies now in the convergence of the field of positive psychology, which is the study of human flourishing, in which the science of gratitude lives a convergence of that field and the field of, of health and well-being and cardiovascular health. There's a shift in the conversation in cardiology over the last 30 years from cardiovascular disease to cardiovascular health. And even the American Heart Association redefined its objectives, not simply to avoid disease, but to promote health. And so the convergence there is this idea of positive health, which is happiness leading to health. And using gratitude as an example, when I appreciate something good that has happened in my life or someone good who has given me something that perhaps I didn't expect or I didn't deserve, and I take a moment to feel that feeling in my body, my heart rate lowers, my heart rate variability, which as we mentioned is a sign of, um, of heart health increases, which is a good thing, my blood pressure goes down, my stress hormones go down, leading to less inflammation in my blood vessels. And we know from studies now that there is a lower risk of heart attack and stroke in people who experience gratitude on a regular basis. And so I use gratitude in my clinic all the time. 
I find something about a patient or their family that I express gratitude for. And it's one thing to express gratitude for another person, Robbie. I had a tendency, and I think a lot of our colleagues have this too, is to dismiss when someone else is being grateful to us. I've heard people say, you know, thank you so much for being my doctor. And the doctor will say, oh, it's just my job. I'm only doing my job. And I've been guilty of that. And I want to encourage our listeners not only to practice thinking about what they're grateful for, not only to practice expressing the gratitude, just like empathy unexpressed is empty in a sense. Gratitude is the same way. It's not enough to just feel grateful. The next step is then to communicate that clearly to someone else and perhaps even add an act of kindness to that. You double the benefits. You're describing the really positive side of it. And as you say, expressing gratitude is a double win, both for the person that is receiving it and the person that is giving it. And unlike other aspects of our happiness, the so-called hedonic treadmill, where the more we have, the more it diminishes, I think gratitude is the type of thing, the more we do it, the better we get at it, the better we feel about it, and the happier we make other people. It's clearly a societal way of creating uh, unity, of creating alignment and purpose. And it is, I believe, intrinsic to humans, probably to some other primates, but what makes, uh, I'll say, the higher end of the evolutionary scale be so successful. And yet, we don't do it very often. Mm-hmm. And I'm particularly interested by the, I'll call it the negative tone that I think is often permeating into medicine. And I recognize all the problems that are there, but how we tend not to talk as much about the positive sides and offer the gratitude that the profession creates. And I worry again that this is contributing, making our unhappiness greater, conceivably adding to burnout and potentially even to the sense of moral injury. Mm. Um, Again, what are your thoughts based upon Mm. the research you've done and your expertise? Yeah. Robbie, I'm going to give you some negatives for gratitude based on what you're saying. It'd be a little controversial. Um, so, so the first is a warning. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard people tell someone else who's struggling or having trouble, well, find something to be grateful for. Just be grateful for what you have. And that's a recipe for disaster. It may be well-meaning, but if someone is really struggling and they are told to ignore that and the facts that are around them and to look and to be forced to look towards something positive that's what's part of toxic positivity uh when a leader who maybe is trying to do a good job but is really backfiring uh by saying i'm grateful for this and i'm grateful for that when they're blind to the cries for help so that's one thing i wanted to say about gratitude and a potential danger for encouraging gratitude at the wrong time the second piece you were alluding to this, which is why is it so hard to remember to be grateful and to do the practice? And it's because of the way that we're wired. Imagine if humans uh, a million years ago were wired with uh, an imperative 
to be grateful for every little thing and to stop what they were doing and to say, oh, I'm so grateful that I found this apple here. Or I'm, and to stop and look at the apple and to savor it for an hour or two. Meanwhile, tigers are coming in from the sides. The weather is turning. There's no shelter. We wouldn't live very long if we only lived in gratitude. So it's only natural that we're wired for survival. And our first imperative is not to be grateful, not to appreciate what we have and to appreciate our resources. The first imperative from an evolutionary standpoint is to protect ourselves and to perceive threats. And that goes against this idea of practicing gratitude. So there's nothing wrong with you or anybody who has a hard time being grateful or remembering to be grateful. That's not the way we're wired. It is, as you were suggesting though, it is a hardwired human emotion that for millennia has helped tribes and communities come together and to appreciate each other and to build trust in our community. So those are a couple of other nuances for gratitude that I find interesting. Uh, I would have some concerns about your concerns, Jonathan, in the sense that I would agree if all you have is gratitude, particularly in the face of danger or problems, then you're going to be stuck in uh, la-la land, if you want to think about <laughs> it that way, and it's not going to work. But I think that gratitude leads to another action, which is generosity. Mm. Generosity has really been shown to have a lot of positive impact in people beyond what we think it otherwise would be. If I offer a research subject uh, $25, or I give that person the opportunity to donate that to someone else in need, and they donate it to someone else in need, the level of happiness they experience is significantly higher than when they receive the money directly. And I think that gratitude to me becomes the uh, foundation upon which, uh, to which you said, addressing the problems that exist, and then recognizing the ability to benefit others. And when we benefit others, we benefit ourselves even more. And I fear that when we are ungrateful, when we only see the negative, mm -hmm. then we don't take those actions. It's always amazing to me that the people who are most generous when it comes to charity are not the wealthy. It's mm -hmm. actually people who are working class, uh, based upon the data that's there. And I think there's a level of gratitude for what they have, for their lives, for their jobs, for their families. Now, if they lose those things, none of us are going to be grateful. It's going to be very hard to climb back up that hill. But mm -hmm. I still see gratitude as being a vital component leading to a bunch of other positive actions, each of which augments our happiness. Mm. I, I love that. I, I love how you described it so clearly, Robbie. And this idea of it's one thing to experience something positive to ourselves. It's a whole different thing altogether to take action and to help someone else and to either experience that same thing or to share something with someone. We know from studies on longevity and from the blue zone research that people who volunteer their time in service of others for nothing in return, people who act altruistically live longer and live better with more joy in their lives. So it's a win-win all around and it takes effort and a daily reminder to ourselves that when life gets hard and we want to turn inward and we want to just shut the door to the world, that's exactly the moment when it may be beneficial for us to 
turn out and look beyond ourselves to see who we can serve? I'm not naive to uh, fail to recognize that there are a lot of people in this world who are truly suffering. And for them to find gratitude is going to be difficult. I just don't think that that's the typical American life. And I think that the negativity that currently exists, where we see problems before we see joy and see the things that we are privileged and lucky to have, mm. I just think that that's harming our psyche and I believe contributing to many of the problems that exist in society today and maybe even some of those existing inside medicine. Uh, Jeremy. Do you want to ask us a question about any of this as a patient and a listener? Robbie, as you said a bit ago, we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving, and it will be released the Tuesday after. Um, you both talked about empathy and gratitude. Many people during the holidays are extremely thankful for being able to spend time with family they do not get to see very often. Uh, unfortunately, family gatherings can be a major point of stress for many people, especially in today's extremely hot and divided political climate. Uh, regardless of where someone stands politically or ideologically, it seems that everyone has a family member to who they find contention with at the holidays, whether it be the quote unquote crazy left wing aunt or crazy right wing brother, or maybe the entire family who's on the opposite end of the ideological spectrum as them. It's hard not to have major current events such as the Israel-Palestine conflict, Ukraine conflict, inflation, abortion laws, etc. come up in conversation. Uh, what are your thoughts on navigating these often inevitable conversations with family at the holidays, you know, that can make someone feel stressed and isolated and unwelcome? And I would say people should keep in mind that uh, maybe that quote unquote crazy right wing uncle who makes them feel stressed and isolated is also maybe feeling stressed and isolated, unwelcome from the same interactions. Uh, what are your thoughts on these interactions and how to be empathetic to family you may disagree with? while still being grateful for them as family and the many, many, many things you do actually have in common with them that often over get overlooked in these situations. I'm not an expert in this area. That's why I feel so grateful to have Jonathan on the show, but I'll offer my own thoughts, uh, no different, no better than anyone else's. And that is that we have made holidays become problematic on many occasions for exactly the reasons that you say. We have this massive expectation of what they're going to be like. We invest a huge amount of time in preparation. And often, rather than experiencing the gratitude, often than experiencing the generosity that should come out of those family and friend events, we focus again on the negative. Maybe it's part of our biological nature. I actually think it's more consistent with the culture that we have in our nation. And I think your question is really a reminder to listeners, although the holiday will have passed by the time they hear it, but they'll have it for other holidays later this year and next year to maximize the joy, to maximize the gratitude, to maximize the generosity, to try to avoid the negativity, and maybe even tone down the amount of uh, investment they make in their time and their money, and to focus much more on embracing 
the people and the beauty in their life. A love we have not yet talked about on this show, but it is an emotion that is mm. massive in the happiness that it creates. And the more that we can create that love in our lives, create that in our relationships, the more people will feel good. I'm going to predict that Jonathan's going to tell us it's going to positively impact <laughs> their heart and blood vessels and add to uh, the value of living in what should be the greatest time in history. Mm. Jonathan, your oh. final thoughts. Preach, Robbie. <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy, uh, Robbie, I, I love that answer. And yes, I think love uh, would be a wonderful topic of conversation by itself and the things that get in the way of love and how love heals. Your question is just an awesome one because I have personally experienced uh, a lot of what you described uh, at Thanksgiving and other holidays. I have uh, two thoughts on this. The first one is my recommendation would be for people who are about to get together with family who already know that there's somebody or some people in the family where there's conflict to get crystal clear in their minds before they travel, before they get in the same room. Making this real again, Jeremy, uh, I often see when if I'm on call for whether it's Thanksgiving, uh, if I'm in the hospital on New Year's and Christmas, there are spikes in heart attacks, strokes, abnormal heart rhythms. And some of that is driven exactly by the conflict, the emotional political conflict that you're talking about. So this is not just a trivial, well, how can I avoid conflict? We're talking about there's a health impact here. So with that said, I would encourage people to do what I do, which is try to get really clear before going into the room, what I am willing to accept in terms of uh, how people are speaking, whether it's with hostility, uh, anger, rage over what I am intending to be as a peaceful, loving, warm holiday celebration. So I think if we get clear on what we're willing to accept and what our intentions are for coming together, that's a first step. And that'll lead us in two directions. It may, for example, lead someone to say, you know, I don't really want to have any conflict around the Thanksgiving table. So if uncle you know, whoever starts spouting out about something that's very vitriolic, I'm going to politely say something and say that I'd, I wish that we can put that aside for now. And if that doesn't work, I will politely leave. So it may sound extreme, but I think we have to set our own boundaries because other people's behavior and emotions can affect us. Uh, the second is, if we decide on the other hand, Jeremy, that I don't see my family that often. I really want to discuss these things with them. These are important world events. I want to hear what they have to say. I'd like to learn and become wiser in my perspective. That's a very different intention. Then we come into the room with a spirit of curiosity. And we have to, if we do that, start with some ground rules with the people around us and say, wouldn't it be interesting if we could share our views, but only if we do it in a way where it's grounded in love, empathy, and compassion because we all just want to become better and wiser here. And if that can be agreed on, I think it's possible to have very challenging conversations as long as we do it with skill and we have a bit of a plan and practice in place. One final thought. I want to be grateful and express my gratitude to our listeners who, first of all, put up with our back and forth conversation, but more importantly, Tune into Fixing Healthcare because they are committed 
to making American medicine once again the best in the world. They're committed to improving the health of all people. They're generous with their energy and with their time. And I just want to thank them at this uh, time of Thanksgiving for their dedication, for their commitment, for their work to make the world better. And I think it does happen through one person at a time. So happy Thanksgiving to all. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you have more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com and you can visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.